Good morning, church. Today, we're kicking off chapter 4, 1 Peter. So if you have a copy of God's Word, there's a lot of things that divide us, that make us different. There's a lot of things we don't have in common. I know that there's something that unites us all. Do you know that we all have the same thing in common, this, this one thing? We probably got a few things, but at least this, that no matter what your background, no matter what class you took, no matter your advancement of education or your, your training vocationally, whatever it is, I know this for a fact. None of us have ever, 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 no, not ever, have we taken a class on suffering. Elementary school, was there a suffering 101? No, 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 I, I don't remember that either. In middle school, high school, maybe some of us have some, an associate's degree, bachelor's degree, master's degree, I don't know. I don't know any PhD program that, that offers suffering 101 either, but none of us were taught in school or any type of training how to suffer. And let me get more specific, how to suffer well how to suffer well. We have that in common. So I'm confident that Peter is going to bring it today and that he is going to provide a few more tools to put in our toolbox because we are desperate to know how do we navigate the hard stuff and the trouble that comes our way? How do we do this? Is there really hope when it gets dark? And I hope week after week, there's more and more hope rising up in you, more confidence that God is speaking as we think about all throughout Scripture, the whole Bible, we could say the whole Bible is about suffering, and there's all different types of suffering, all different varieties, shapes, and sizes. And I'm going to go through these super fast, but there's at least 14 kinds of suffering in the Bible. First of all, there's uh, Adamic suffering. No, I didn't curse. We're talking about Adam. Adam, that general, not specific, the root of all suffering is from the fall, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, from the very beginnings of the downfall of humanity and sin entering the world, there is now suffering. All suffering comes basically from that, but there's also demonic suffering. We're talking about attacks. We're talking about spiritual darkness. Somebody say Job. Right, yeah, that, the book in the Old Testament, not Job. Don't get confused. It's not, it's not Job. No Jobby Job. There's Joby Job, okay? Job suffered, and we see from Job chapter 1 that suffering entered in via Satan but only because he was a pit bull on a leash in God's hand. And so the demonic is powerful. Satan is attacking. There is suffering that is coming from the enemy. But there's also victim suffering, evil done against us. Uh, if you fast forward not too far from Genesis 3 and get to Genesis 34, you're going to run into uh, a lady named Dinah. And Dinah was Jacob's daughter and ended up hanging out with some not-so-cool cats, ended up getting raped and we see it in Scripture that she was a victim of evil and suffering because she was a victim that she had a choice to make. And that's what we're going to talk about today in part. But that's not the whole of suffering. We also have what? Collective suffering. Like when, when all of us suffer, 2020 was a global suffering. It was a collective suffering. We see God's people, Israel, the Hebrew people in Egypt. What were they doing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years? They were suffering together. There was a collective suffering that is unique. We also have disciplinary suffering, correction from God. Hebrews talks about this, that if you're truly a child of God, if you're a son or a daughter, he is going to spank your keister, okay? Uh, there is discipline. You do wrong. You go astray. You're getting a spanking. God loves you too much to allow you to keep on going. There's discipline, right? And there's suffering because of that. How about persecution? There's persecution suffering. Being associated with Jesus, you will suffer. Paul knew it greatly. Peter, we're looking at First Peter here. He knew what it was like to be persecuted because of who you're associated with, especially 
Jesus. How about this? Empathetic suffering. People you love are hurting and you're hurting because they're hurting and you're joining them in their suffering. That suffering is very real. How about testimonial suffering? God given opportunity to be a witness suffering. God says, I want to use you and I want to use your trial and your pain. Stephen, the first martyr, the first set of deacons, the first one that was martyred in the church was a deacon. And he stepped up boldly and proclaimed the gospel and they killed him for it. He was a witness to the truth. He suffered and glorified God as a testimony. How about this providential suffering? God has a bigger purpose. Do you realize that Joseph's story makes up a big chunk of Genesis. Genesis 37 all the way through 50. He wraps up the latter half of the book of Genesis and his entire story is about suffering and suffering and suffering and suffering. Why? Because God is a God of providential purposes. He divinely is orchestrating wickedness to work it out for good. Our God does that. How about this? Preventative suffering. Uh, wisdom and Proverbs says that uh, there is going to be pain tied to God trying to teach you a lesson and prevent you from going further. And so it's going to hurt when you take a couple steps the wrong way because God has wired us in a certain way that we are going to suffer based on consequences. And He's trying to teach us wisdom in that to prevent us from absolute foolishness. How about this? Mysterious suffering. Uh, what do we have? We have mystery in all of Scripture. Why did that happen? Why did it happen like that? Why did they have to go through that? Can we just be honest? We have no idea. There's a lot of suffering that it, I don't know. God doesn't say. Scripture doesn't clarify. Things that you've gone through, why have you gone through it? We don't know. And you may never know. There is a mystery to suffering, suffering oftentimes. How about this punishment suffering? Talking about Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, we're talking drop-dead suffering that disobedience can lead to some serious Consequences, being punished. We see it. We see it right there in the beginning of the church. Consequential suffering, there's a cause and effect that Judas did what he did and he suffered the consequences of it. And lastly, maybe this is everybody's favorite, apocalyptic suffering. You're like, I don't even know what that means. Uh, apocalyptic suffering of increased evil in the last days. Anybody seen anything like that? apocalyptic suffering, more and more darkness, more evil, more suffering for those that are taking a stand and to walk in the light. And sometimes we contribute to the suffering, if we can be honest. Sometimes we suffer because we did something. Sometimes we are an absolute victim. Rarely are we absolutely innocent. But even in our response to our victim suffering sometimes we're guilty too right the way we respond to what happened to us leads to more suffering and so we compound the problem and i, I want us to to start off thinking about this god does not give you the option of whether or not you will suffer have we come to terms with that you don't have an option of whether or not you're going to suffer but here's what we have we have two options of how we're going to respond when somebody say when it's not if when suffering comes knocking on your door there are two options that we're going to be talking about peter absolutely clarifies that we can sin in response to suffering or we can serve in response to suffering 
It's one or the other, and we choose again and again which way we're going to go. Jot this down. If we're talking about two options, which option are you going to choose? Which option? Sin or serve? The first one is, I can suffer and sin. I can suffer and sin. Most of us are well, 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 somebody say well, well, quite well acquainted with how to blow it after something hard happens, how to make a bad situation worse by our attitude, our words, and our responses. And Peter's so helpful. Look at this. Verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Do you think that Jesus understands? You think he gets us? He suffered in the flesh. What's our response? Peter, what should we do if we know that Christ suffered in the flesh? He says this, church, arm yourself. Are you ready for battle? You ready for battle? Arm yourself with the same way of thinking, the same way that Jesus thought. Have this mind for whoever has suffered in the flesh, whoever has put to death the old, whoever's flesh is being crucified with Christ. If you're a Christian, that's true. And this is what he says. If you're with Jesus, he paints this really bold picture of you have ceased from sin, which means you don't keep on living a lifestyle of sin anymore. That's the old you. There's something new that has happened. Verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions. Stop doing that. We're not doing that anymore. But instead, for the will of God. For the will of God. There is an old way. Do you believe it? Do you know it? Have you experienced it? There's an old way of living for the passions of the flesh. I did what I wanted to. I chose my way. I didn't care what anybody else said or anybody else thought. I didn't care of what was going to happen as a result. I was only thinking about me at the time, and I did me. I focused on me. I prioritized me, my passions, my desires. And he goes, Christian, church, if you're following Jesus, a suffering Savior, that is the old you. And now there is this thing called the will of God. Doing what God wills, what God desires, what God has stated in His Word. That is brand new. New master, new code of conduct, new value system. And sometimes sometimes we, we kind of stumble along the way trying to figure out this new life, don't we? How do I do this now? I know the old way. It's very familiar. Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Gentiles? Yeah, he's saying, uh, you know that those that are far from God, those, those pagan dogs, godless, uh, you know how they live, right? How do they live? They live in, what does it say? Sensuality. If it feels good, do it. Just follow your heart. If you feel strongly about it, believe it, do it. Sensuality. Obey your senses. Passions? How about that? What's the way of the godless? Strong desires. Do you believe this? That we're more vulnerable when we're hurting? We're more prone to wander when things are not going our way? When we have been wronged, betrayed, hurt? When we've been backstabbed, lied about? When our relationships are crumbling? When we didn't get the thing that we thought we were going to get and our plans are not going according to my will be done? It's really, really tempting to say, I feel strongly about going in a very different direction than God's direction. What does he say next? Drunkenness, self-medicating of any kind. We're not just talking about alcohol. We're talking about any substance at all. Dull the pain, escapism. What's the next word? Orgies. Please don't Google that. All right, kids? Talking about any habits that are all-out, unrestrained 
absolutely rejecting God's way, especially with our sexuality. He doesn't stop. There's more. Somebody say there's more. He's like, oh, I want you to see it. I want you to get it. The patterns are clear of those that are living their way, not God's way, not God's will. Drinking parties. Sometimes we don't just want to hurt or escape personally and alone. Kind of want to do it together, right? Misery loves company. And so every time there is social media posts of look at all the fun I'm having and all the excitement of partying with all of my friends, every social media post is screaming, I'm hurting. I'm hurting. I'm hurting. I'm lost. I am lost. I'm empty inside. I'm trying to fill it up and make it look like it's awesome. Death can masquerade as a party and we can do it, can do it together, making each other feel a little bit better rejecting God's way, we're going to do it our way. How about lawless idolatry? Instead of choosing God's law as the standard lawless value system, I choose the law. I determine the standard in which I live by, and everybody's doing that. Everybody's doing that. What does verse 4 say? With respect to this, how does a godless culture, how does a dark, dark society, how do they respond to you? With respect to this and all of their lifestyle, they're surprised. They're surprised. Why are they surprised? They're surprised when you do not join them. When you don't join them. Oh, 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 holier than thou. Oh, oh, you're a churchy snob. Oh, too good. No, I got it too good with God to live the old way. God's got too much in store. He's so much better. I'm not better than you to join you. It's just that God is so good to me to pull me out out of that and offer me something that actually satisfies. Have you ever been rejected? Has anybody ever been surprised when you're like, what do you mean you're not going to come out? What do you mean you're not going to join us? What do you mean? What do you mean? We used to. Why aren't we doing that? We always do that. But throughout history, this has always been the case. Shocked and surprised when we don't join in the flood. Do you love that imagery? Peter says, you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. Flood of debauchery. They, they malign you. We got some big words. We're going to unpack those in a second. Verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They're not giving an account to me or you, right? Everybody's going to give an account to, to him, to the king, to King Jesus. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live no matter who people are, no matter when they've lived, no matter the death, there's life brought by the Spirit. And the Spirit, the way that God does, that's just what God does. Somebody say, that's what God does. Where there's, where there's death. Isn't that awesome? Wherever death is to be found on the earth, no matter how dark and wicked and evil, no matter where death is found, what is the Spirit of God doing? God's just always doing this. He's bringing life. He's bringing life. He's bringing life. That's what He loves to do. That's what He promises I don't know if you're experiencing the life, but you're going to be prone to go back to more death. You're going to be prone to crumble under the pressure. And so when we suffer, I think we're more vulnerable and more open and susceptible to going back to the old way, to following the crowd. And if you're taking notes, jot this down. When I suffer, I can become selfish. Have you, have you felt that? When I go through hard stuff, I, I can become so selfish and lose sight of the suffering that I cause. Uh-oh. When you and I go through the stuff of life, we don't just go through it. We respond to it. And so, do you choose option one? When you suffer, 
When you go through the hard stuff, is your, is your suffering leading to more sin? Is it leading to selfishness that leads to an impact on others that you don't even care about how you affect others? You don't, you're not even thinking about that, right? It's not your, I'm going through so much, I don't even care what happens to anybody else. Paul Tripp says the DNA of sin is selfishness. The DNA of sin is selfishness. We, we implode on ourselves. We cave in upon suffering. Maybe you've heard this before, but hurting people hurt people and victims become victimizers because so often the things that are done to us, it doesn't stop with us. Oftentimes there's a ripple effect from us. Have you been there? Hurting so bad and before you knew it, what am I doing to the people around me? When I suffer, not only selfishness, but I can be, become entitled more than I already am. Okay, can we be honest? We're already entitled. We become more deeply ingrained, more entitled, and think that I've earned the right to sin. If I have to go through so much hard stuff, I deserve, I deserve. I don't know if that's ever come out of your mouth, but I wonder if that's come out of our lives. And maybe it starts small. Can we, can we have a moment of honesty in the house? I've had a really hard week. I just need a beer that turns to six, that turns to 12. I deserve it. I'm entitled to it. Or woman, I got to put up with you, and so I have the right to go out to the bar. I have to put up with these kids. I have the right to get out of here and party a little bit because I got to put up with the snot-nosed brats all day. I deserve it. I earn it. So when life gets really hard and responsibility starts caving on you and the pressure of the stuff that you're going through, and I don't know how you respond when you get news of a loved one is, is sick or dying, or you find out the job, that you thought you had security, it's, it's gone. Or the health that you so boasted in, when that starts becoming a big question mark and all of a sudden the response is not, God, I trust you. The response is, God, how dare you? And where are you? And I need to escape and I need to numb it out. And I, I don't know where you run, but Peter's like, there's plenty of people saying, come join us. Come on, come on. I'll give you some options. I'll provide some invites to join. And so it doesn't matter what has happened to you. What really matters, Peter's saying, is how are you going to respond? No matter the hardship, no matter the temptation, your choice is it when I suffer, I sin. Has that been a pattern? And as of today, you could say, no more. I'm done. I'm done living the old default way of uh, selfishness and entitlement. I'm not doing it anymore. I quit. I'm quitting this today. And here, here's a sobering, really sobering subject. Some of us have grown up with some, some trauma. Some of us have some capital T trauma. Some of us little t trauma. We're not talking about just hard stuff. Maybe your childhood was not just like a week that was bad or a year that was bad, but a decade that was horrifying or a loss that scarred you and even as a, an adult, there's still evidences, but it's a choice. It's a choice. So here's, here's two people. I just want to introduce you to one of them you, you may know, Mother Teresa and Harold Shipman. Mother Teresa and Harold Shipman, very different individuals. So, so have you heard people say, well, if you go through that hard stuff, then like that's how you're going to turn out. If you go through a childhood a certain way and experience certain things, it's inevitable that you are going to turn out a certain way. Are we not fatalistic a little bit with that? 
Well, you know, if they had a hard childhood, then, I mean, they're going to be rebellious and, and they're going to fight and they're just going to be worldly. Is that true? Because Mother Teresa was with her father when her father passed away when she was not even 10 years old and she watched him suffer and die. And she wasn't even a teenager and felt the weight of being an orphan and feeling like, God, what are you doing? And have you left me? And why are you taking good gifts away from me? What's Mother Teresa's story? Drug, sex, and rock and roll? Was that her story? A horrific, difficult, painful childhood led her down a path to feel the full weight of suffering and allow suffering to do its work of changing her heart to be a heart full of compassion. And that she would spend her entirety of her adult years and decades pouring her life into the most impoverished Indian uh, Calcutta little villages and she gave and she gave and she gave out of the pain God brought healing because she made a choice. She suffered and did not choose a path of sin and a flood of debauchery as, as Peter puts it. We got another guy, Harold Shipman. What happened to Harold? He watched his mom suffer and die. And the pain that it caused him led him down a different path because he made a choice. And he chose to harbor all of that resentment and shaking his fist at God, he became the most horrific serial killer in history. And for the rest of his adult life, he chose to torture for days individuals and make them suffer the way he watched his mom suffer. He wasn't just a throat-slicing maniac. He enjoyed every moment of the screams and the crying and the begging for mercy. And he lived off of it Two people, two childhoods, two paths of pain and suffering, two very different options, different roads chosen. And I wonder, regardless of what our background is, what path are you choosing? Because it's a choice. Turn your neighbor and say, it's a choice. It's a choice. There's options. There's two options. One option that we see so clearly is one that looks just like the world and everybody's inviting us to it. If you're taking notes, just jot this down. Maybe you're not capable of being a serial killer, but maybe you are capable of going down a very slippery slope. What would your slippery slope look like? Well, Peter gives us a list here, right? We just went through a number of, of terms that mark a lifestyle of flesh, selfishness, and entitlement in response to pain. Sensuality, sensuality, where do I lack restraint no matter what's been done to me, no matter how hard is your response, I go to food, I go to money, I am angry, my mouth runs and runs, I explode based on my emotions and feelings at the time, sensuality, no self-control, no restraint. That's one place we can go. And that, that's a slippery slope. Somebody say that's slippery, right? It may start small and then it grows and grows and it gets deeper and deeper. How about this? Peter said what? Passion, passion. What evil desire dominates me? What desire inside of me am I not putting to death, but I continue to say, I feel very strongly about this and I'm not going to let this go. I don't know what your passion is. He mentions drunkenness. Where am I prone to addiction? And it, for you, it may not be alcohol. It may be a thousand different objects, substances, things that you put in your mouth, smoke, drink, look at, wherever you go, whatever you do with your money and your time that is so addictive. And that's your response to the pain and the suffering. Orgies. What sexual sin entices me? Where am I curious? What kind of slippery slope does it take me? He mentions social parties. And again, is there, is there a problem with parties? 
Somebody say no. What social sins tempt me? Maybe I don't do it in private, but I am prone to do it with old friends living the old way. He mentions debauchery. What evil am I enjoying in private? Maybe nobody knows, but there is a flood of it leading me down a slip and slide of more and more sin and maligning. What in the world does maligning mean? The idea of maligning is I, I want to see somebody hurt. They hurt me. I want to see them hurt. Is there anybody in your life where if you're really honest, maybe other people don't know, but most likely they do know because you talk about it because it overflows from the heart out of the mouth is, well, they deserved it. And, and I wish they would experience that. And man, I want to pay them back and I want to see justice served. And you are willing to harbor in your heart so much bitterness and hatred and Peter says, it's, it's got to go. That's the way of the world. That's the old way. You can't be filled with hope if you're filled with sin. Something has to change. Something has to replace the old. Any kind of change is hard. Kicking an old habit is so insanely difficult. But we got to remember, sin caused Jesus to suffer. Jesus was the one that suffered on my behalf. I am not the victim and I'm not innocent. I'm the reason for the suffering of Jesus. If we are going to be following Jesus and we're going to be following in his footsteps, anybody in favor of that? I'm sick of the old. I'm sick of the old steps, the old way, the old friends. I need something new. I don't need, just need to stay away from the bad and the old. I need to follow. I need to be part of something that is going to give me life. And I can be like Jesus to actually help and not hurt. I can actually see my suffering being used as a catapult to get me into the future where I'm being changed and I'm helping others change too. So what's, what's option number two? Option number one is I suffer, I sin. There's got to be something better than that. Option number two is I, I suffer and I, I serve. I, I want to be like my king. I'm following in his footsteps. And when he suffered, he chose service. Who does that? Who does that? Being absolutely wronged, harmed, hurt, tortured, abused, used, lied about. And the response is, service service others others not not me it's all about everybody else somebody say that's freedom that is a life of freedom where you can say even though i'm being crushed even though the weight of life and all of the hurts in the past trauma i can be free to focus on the needs of others if that's not christianity if that's not what a selfish lost dark world desperately needs is little glimpses of Christ-like selfless service. We are to be that. That is the calling of the church. So church, how are we doing at choosing option number two? Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. That's how, that's how he transitions into verse number seven. I mean, we see history in terms of what? Hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades, centuries. Do you know how God sees history as he thinks about the end? Uh, it's part one and part two. The first advent, creation, fall, and there is coming a time when Messiah is going to show up and the prophecies are going to be fulfilled and the end of death and Satan and sin is going to be over. He's coming. And guess what? He committed to follow through with His promise in the midst of suffering. He did it and accomplished it for us. Can I get an amen? That's a good spot for an amen. And guess what? Now enters chapter two, the start of the part two, the sequel is now that Jesus has come, he is going to fulfill his promises all the way through. He suffered and his people will suffer. 
And as we follow Him to the very end, no matter how dark it gets, the end of all things, Peter says, it's at hand. So how do we respond? Because the very next word he says, therefore, therefore, because this is the end, this is what you should do. And you know what I was waiting for? I was waiting for, for Peter to say, this is the end of all things. Therefore, you should stock up on all the rations you can, buy a bunker and ammo up. And I didn't find it anywhere, not even in like a footnote or anything like that. What does he say? If this is the end, if this is it, Peter, what are we supposed to do? Therefore, be self-controlled. Do you think that's natural in response to the end, the end, the apocalypse, the end is now? Be self-controlled. Why? Because we are not doing the self-control thing super well. And we haven't for 2,000 years. He says this, be sober-minded. Self-control, sober-minded. That's the response to the end of human history coming to a close. Why would I do that? For the sake of your prayers. Verse 8, above all, keep on loving one another earnestly. Somebody say earnestly. There we go. Full-hearted, fully engaged, love one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Ooh, there's a clause there. Yeah. Not just hospitality. Hospitality a certain way. So what are we supposed to do? The end is near. It is coming. These are the final days. Peter, what should the church do? Not what they do by instinct. Not what everybody else is doing. Self-controlled, sober-minded, praying, loving, sacrificing, covering sin, showing hospitality, not grumbling. Wow, this is different. Somebody say that's different. That's, that's really, really different. So the, the end times urgency. What should an urgency of being in the end times lead you to do? It demands my everything. Here, here's a few if you're taking notes. It demands my will, my full will of I got to be self-controlled. Not self-destructing, not going the way that the world goes, but self-controlled, self-controlled. How about your mind? God's like, I want, I want your full-mindedness, sober-mindedness, not drunk-minded, not escapism and numbing out, sober. How well is that, that taking care of the problems? How, how many solutions are brought by saying, I just need another. I just need another. And it'll make me feel better. It'll take the edge off. Is that, is that what it does? Is that what it does? Because we make it worse. And Peter's saying, make it better. Be sober-minded. Don't compound the problem. How about your soul? He's saying with urgency, he's saying your soul needs to be fully engaged, fully alive. Prayers. The process of suffering should lead to processing your pain with God. Are you doing that? The temptation is to process your pain with everybody else. And then when you're exhausted from venting and emotionally vomiting on everybody, oh yeah, maybe I should go to God. How about God first, God always? How about discernment when it comes to who needs to know about how angry and upset I am about the thing that I'm going through? Who needs to know? And I would say very, very few people need to know what you're suffering. God first pick one friend and pray. For the sake of your soul, process your pain with God first, not the wrong people. Your children should not know. Grandparents, parents, not everybody in your family should know what you are going through. You don't process verbally with the people around you that can't carry the weight of it because they're crushed by it. God should know. One person should know. Get off the phone. Get off social media. Stop venting to everybody else that's not part of the problem or the solution. Christian, it's time. It's time to start going vertical 
instead of horizontal making it worse and worse and worse. It's embarrassing when you have people that don't know Jesus come up to you and say, hey, aren't you a pastor? And aren't you a pastor of that church? So doesn't that person go to that church? So why do they talk like a pagan on social media and then pretend to do the Jesus thing on Sunday? They're, they're with you, right? Yes, that's one of the many hypocrites among us, right? There's, there's many of them. And they're learning to reel it in and take it to God. They're learning to not vent to everybody else. They're in process just like all the rest. But some of us are learning at a much slower pace. Your prayers are being affected by your lack of self-control and your lack of sober-mindedness. What else does he say? Your heart. Your heart. In the end, the last days, your heart should be changing. It should be filled not with fear, but love. Not fear. Somebody say, not fear. Not that. Done with the anxiety, and I'm killing that. That's the old way. Love one another earnestly. This is what I need to do. I need to cover the sin of the sufferer. I need to cover the sin of the wicked sinner that has hurt me, moved with compassion, less criticism, and I need to have my heart changed. And could we clarify? If wickedness is happening and evil is being done to you, we don't cover it up and hide it. Okay? Can we be clear on that? Peter says in chapter 2, we don't cover up evil, that we expose it, that light shines into places where wrong has happened, but there's a right way to expose it. There's a correct tone, attitude, and the circle that knows about it, we don't hide and cover up. We're living in a day of church cover-ups and church scandals like never before. We need to expose evil, even if it's in the pew, but we need to do it in a way that is love covering the whole situation. That there is a heart of love, not a heart to reveal, expose, and be angry about it, but instead to bring healing and to bring justice. There's love. There's love. A heart. A heart that changes. How about this? I don't, I don't know about you, but going from suffering to serving, this is, this is hard. Because what did Jesus do? He served. He served. And service is the new response. Anybody good at that? In the midst of suffering, saying, I'm going to serve. I'm going to sacrifice. That's hard when you're going through it, and, and I'm not going to name any names, but there's a number of us here that are going through some really hard stuff and behind closed doors and family ordeals that there is pain and there is suffering and there's trials. And you know what's so beautiful? Is that individuals that have served you are people that are not using their hurts as an excuse to be selfish. But instead, it compels them to step out into love and to care, and to meet needs of others, even though they're still going through their own thing. And you know who you are. But there is so much pain that is screaming, just isolate, run away, and hide. Wait till it gets easier, and then you can kind of step back into ministry, and step back into church, and step back into serving. And God's saying, the end is near. What should I do? Press into service when I don't feel it, right? When I have every reason to make excuses, I need to show hospitality. I need to welcome people in. I need to embrace where people are at, whether I know them or not. Literally, hospitality means to welcome in the stranger. Not my buddies after church or friends at the restaurant, but instead, who are you? What's your name again? You're coming over for lunch, right? I don't even know who you are, but what are you doing this week? We should get together. So whether close or brand new acquaintances, 
God's saying, when you go through suffering and hard stuff, you kick open your doors wide and you say, come in. This is when we need to press in the most. And how about this? The tongue, our talk, our talk. Do all this. Don't do it with grumbling. Don't, don't think that you're serving. And then when you walk away, you do it with grumbling and say, well, I'm still serving the Lord. I'm still doing it. Is God honored by all of your public service and private grumbling? Can we have a talk? For many of us, our pattern in life is I'll give, I'll give, I'll serve, I'll serve. And then when I walk away, my mouth is on. Well, I can't believe it. Why am I the only one? And it took so much and they don't, they're not grateful. And then don't do it because your service is a joke if it's not from the heart. If your mouth is revealing that your heart is not in the right place, nothing on the outside is going to compensate for that. God sees, God knows. He's like, we don't have a lot of time left. The end is near. We are giving and sacrifice even though we're hurting ourselves and we're doing it with a heart that is a heart of gratitude, a heart of joy, and a heart to want to do more and more. And here's the conclusion. Okay, everybody ready? Say, land the plane. We're better together. We're better together. Somebody say better. Better, better, better. We suffer and we serve. We suffer and we still live the life, but we don't do it alone. We do it together. This is what Peter says. He's so excited about this. As each has received a gift, each one of you, church, you've received a gift. Use it to serve one another. Even though you're going through hard stuff and it's dark, even though the world's going to suck you in and say camaraderie is found here, let's serve together. Let's use the gifts that have been given. How should we do it? Peter says this, as good stewards, good stewards of God's varied grace. Those are spiritual gifts, varied grace gifts. Whoever speaks, like right now, some of you that are teachers, some of you that do discipleship one-on-one to smaller groups, that you are opening up your mouth and you're like, I'm proclaiming God's word. If you're going to speak, make sure you're reminded, God's giving me truth to speak. He's giving me his words. He's gifting me to do this. As those who serve, whoever serves is one who serves by the, here it is, the strength that God supplies. Who's supplying the strength for your service? And so what if you're just, oh, kind of white knuckling it and digging the heels in, I'm serving and I'm trying to serve. If you are serving and you're truly serving the Lord, you're serving with a strength that is supernatural and it's not yours. It is a gift. It's a grace gift. I love it. Because God's supplying it. God gets glory. The one who supplies gets glory. Are you doing it? Are you doing it from a a well of God's strength, not your own? Are you getting burnt out recognizing I'm doing it in the flesh? I'm doing it on my own. I'm doing it for recognition. I'm doing it because I have to, because I'm obligated. And he says, oh, you've been gifted. You've been strengthened. In order, why? why? Why would God do this for his church? Why would we do this together? In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Amen? In order that in everything, God's glorified. He gets credit. He gets the glory. The giver gets the glory. If the, if the giver has given the gift, the gift is to be used in the way it was designed with the strength that's supplied so that it's not about you. No credit to you. How awesome is it that every week I get, I get to preach oracles of God. I get to like say God's words. If I get up there in my own strength, if I say my own words, if I have my own message, glory to me, glory to me. What a waste of time, but may God be glorified. God, fill me, strengthen me, give me words. It's not me. It's not me. I can't do this. I can't do this. I was there again last night. I was up at 3am this morning going, I can't, I can't do this. And when you feel like that, every time you open God's word, and some of you know the weight of that, I'm like, I'm going to give a talk to some ladies. I'm going to teach some children. I'm going to get up and, and preach or teach. And you're, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to say. 
God, your strength, God, your words. Here we go. That God would be glorified. That God would be glorified. I love this. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Okay, here's your part. That's your part, okay? Right at the end, we got an amen. I'm not even provoking it. It's right there in the word, okay? So that's your part. Should we start at the beginning? All right, you know your part. Starts with A, ends in men. That's your part. Your part, okay? You ready? Ready? To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Oh, that's really weak. One more time. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Church? Do you want that? Does that make your your heart race of God be glorified? God, bring honor to your name. God, use me in whatever way you see fit. Here's the last takeaways. If we're thinking about stewardship, there is an owner, there's a steward. Owner is the person who legally possesses something. Who's the owner in the story? Who's the owner in the church? Who's the one that owns it all? And we can say it's God, it's all from God, but do we live with God as the owner? Do we recognize we are the steward? A steward is one that does what? The owner and trust management owns resources, okay? It's yours, you're the owner. I'm the steward. What am I supposed to do with it? Whatever the owner says. Do you take your vehicle to the mechanic and say, mechanic, I trust that you understand that I'm the owner of the car and you're the steward. Do you have to wrestle with that a lot? Most of the time you pull up and go, hey, I'm dropping the car off, figure out what's wrong. Or some of you are like, I already know what's wrong. Just fix it, okay? And you expect when you show back up to get your car that your car is going to be there. The keys are going to be handed to you. Maybe you're going to pay an absurd amount of money. But regardless of that, you know that there's an understanding between the two. I'm the owner. You're the steward. I entrusted to you. What if you show up and you're like, hey, Larry, where's her car? Larry, Larry. And they investigate. Oh, Larry thought it was his. Larry took it. Larry quit his job because now he's got a brand new car because he's the owner. Uh, There's confusion whenever we don't get that correct. So here's four types of people. Type one is godless. I don't know if anybody is here that would just be honest and say, I am godless. There's no God. I am ungodly because I think I'm the owner and the steward of my life. I think I own it and I'm the steward. I think my life is mine and I can do whatever I want with it. Godless. Somebody say godless. Godless. How about type two, selfish Christian? I'm the owner and God's the steward of my life. Like I kind of call the shots and when I need help, I just dial up God and he's supposed to come do my thing and fix my problems. And I don't know if that's you, selfish, selfish Christian. How about this? Type, type three. Is this me? The lazy Christian. God's the owner and God's the steward. I know that God owns everything, so I'm not going to argue with it. I know that everything that I have is from him. And I kind of sit back passively and I expect him to just poof, like make it happen. Just zip, zap it and fix it. I just, I sit back and I'm still waiting for God to do his thing because God should just do it all for me. Somebody say that's a bad idea. And we have raised up generation after generation of lazy, lazy Christians. Yes, God did all the work. And now all you have to do is just sit back and watch the show. That's not what stewards do. Stewards know that they're going to give an account because the last type is this, godly. God's the owner and I am the steward of my life. I am the steward of everything that God has given me. Peter is so fired up that he says, you have a gift, you're going to suffer, and as a gifted sufferer, here's the call in your life, serve. Be great, serve. Be like your master, serve. Even when it gets hard, especially when it gets hard. Even when we're going through rough times, 
even when the schedule is horrible, even when I feel like I'm so busy and I don't have time, can I go on vacation for a while as a steward? Can I press pause? No. Because you're going to give an account not for when your schedule was open and you had lots of time to be a steward. You're going to give an account before the owner of every season and every day. No matter how many excuses you're able to make, God's going to hold you and me accountable that every excuse is going to fall short. And I don't know where you're at this morning, but for us to get really, really honest with God about how hard it's been, how I've responded, where I need to turn from the old way, and I need to start living this new, selfless, sacrificial life because the end is near. We're living in the last days, and this is a terrible time to start pulling back and withdrawing. This is the worst possible time to make excuses of why you are not all in fully committed as a steward of all that God has given 